If you, like I, have a fear of flying, then this program will do little to improve your condition. What it will do is reassure you that if something does go wrong while you're up there, the people you rely on to get you back down to terra firma safely are normally competent professional people. It is seemingly unheard of for all engines to fail on a plane, but that's exactly what happens in our story this evening. The story of British Airways Flight 009 in June of 1982. But failing engines were only part of the problems encountered on the flight deck. In fact, the problems just kept on mounting until it came to a point where some passengers began writing letters to their loved ones in the hope that their body would be found and so would the letter. I can only imagine how traumatic it must have been for them. They could not have known it then, but in the face of all of these problems, they could not have been in safer hands with the captain, first officer and flight engineer who were flying the plane. This evening in a Where the Road Takes Me special, the captain of that plane, Captain Eric Moody, joins me to tell you the story and what exactly happened and why. The story of British Airways Flight 009. Good evening and welcome and thank you for joining us. Boeing 747 was the world's first jumbo jet. It reshaped the aviation industry and could be adapted to any job, including carrying space shuttle orbiters. It had two decks with a capacity to carry 500 passengers and a wingspan the width of a football pitch. Aviation enthusiasts still mourn its passing or phasing out. On Thursday, June 24, 1982, the city of Edinburgh, a Boeing 747-200, took off from London Heathrow, its final destination, Auckland, New Zealand. In an era many years prior to the advent of non-stop long-haul flights, this particular flight would stop over at Bombay, Kuala Lumpur, Perth and Melbourne, before arriving in Auckland many hours later. Some passengers who boarded in Heathrow would be going all the way to Auckland, while others would embark and disembark along the way. A new crew to fly the 747 would take over at Kuala Lumpur. It would be a short flight and a night's work for them to take the plane to Perth in Western Australia. But this would be no ordinary flight for Senior First Officer, 32-year-old Roger Greaves, and 40-year-old Senior Flight Engineer Barry Townley Freeman. The captain would be 41-year-old Eric Moody. All three were highly experienced, and they would need to be. The 747 is now almost phased out by most airlines. The German carrier Lufthansa still has one or two in the air. The Airbus A380 has taken over, and that, for Captain Eric Moody, was a sad occasion. Well, really, the 747 now, I'm afraid, as beautiful as it was and as beautiful to fly, is an old aeroplane. And it's too expensive to run. And we all know that airlines are not run by pilots. But, and you're dead right, the 747 now has been phased out, as they say. It's no more. I think, as you say, Lufthansa do run them. And some of the Far East airlines do keep one or two in the air. But uh, the Airbus is the flavour of the month, it would say. I'm still a Boeing man because pilots no more are encouraged to think about what we all call airworthiness which is common sense in the air. And the one thing about common sense is it isn't common, is it? That's the problem throughout the world. To what extent back then were pilots trained to be calm under pressure and to do a logical assessment of what the problem is, or in your case, problems are, while you are under pressure? You're not trained that way. I think you're either made that way 
or you have to try and grow that. I happen to be one of those sort of people that under extreme pressure, my thinking process slows down and I can think lucidly through it. You've only got to sit in a car with your wife when something goes wrong, or I do, to witness how things can go wrong and more wrong just because of panic. And the last thing you want to do is to panic. It's to sit back and think if you've got the time. If you're near the ground or near cumulo granite, you've got to think more quickly. But when you're up in the air, you've got all the time in the world to sit and think. I mean, I was told back in the 1960s by the training manager in BOAC, we don't want to employ pilots that think because pilots that cause less problems are those that follow the book to the T, to the letter. And I said to him, well, I'm sorry, I can think of scenarios where you need pilots that think to get you out the poo. <laughs> and I have to admit that at a dinner subsequent to my incident, he sat opposite me and he put his hand on the table and he said, Eric, put your hand on mine. And I did. And he looked me in the eye and he said, thank God you think. And that's where we're at. I mean, it's a, it's a clash of philosophies, really. But most valuable four inches of flesh to me and my neck i wanted to keep that intact and it makes you think lucidly when it's it's on the line i tell you while captain eric moody and his crew waited for their plane to arrive in kuala lumpur from bombay they were no doubt looking forward to a short night's work with a flight to perth in western australia and a good night's sleep before flying to singapore in the morning little did they know then that fate was constructing a different flight plan for them it was a very short night's work. It was wonderful, or should have been. And then we would have gone to bed, or had a beer and gone to bed. The aeroplane itself would have gone on down through Melbourne to Auckland with another crew. And the next day, I don't know whether they or another crew would have been back up to Perth late afternoon for us to take back up to Singapore, I think it was. That was the plan. Everybody, well, most people are familiar with the, the job of the, the captain and the first officer. But talk to me about the job or the role of the flight engineer's job. He or she sort of mechanic, diagnostic analyst. Do they have flight engineers still? No, no. flight engineers have dis- disappeared into a tiny, tiny electronics box, probably about uh, three or four inches square. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a shame because... They were wonderful in many ways. But look, if you've got good flight engineers, and like everything else in life, they're good doctors, they're good pilots, and they're good flight engineers. Give me a good flight engineer any day, and I would trust his word. If he had said to me, Captain, if we go with that snag, we can cope. I'd go if, if, I, if I trusted. And you had two very experienced people with you that night because I, I know it's been said and written that when problems arose in this plane, that at least the passengers could not have been in safer hands. I think that's very true. They were very experienced crew. Like the majority of aviation crews, the crews are very, very experienced. But like everything else in life, and uh, I did explain this one way to a, one day to a doctor, to a surgeon, and I said, what you've got to remember is that in all professions, there are ability ranges. There are some who are terrifically competent, and there are some who bump along the line of just acceptable. Every pilot you meet will say, I'm an average pilot. Well, I'm afraid not all of them can be average pilots. Some are good and some are very good 
and some are bumping along the, comp- the barely competent level. And on that day, I think you had a very competent crew. But everybody thinks they're competent. And what you've got to find out, those that aren't. And apparently it's the same for doctors. So now this surgeon said, don't you ever go and consult a doctor, a surgeon, unless you come to me first, and I'll tell you whether you should. And it's the same. You can't do it with pilots. You can't do it with doctors if you're a normal person. The first two hours of the flight from Kuala Lumpur to Perth in Western Australia were uneventful. The weather was good and the skies were clear. After answering the call of nature, Captain Eric Moody went downstairs to chat to a member of the cabin crew. While there, he was called back to the cockpit by his first officer, Roger Greaves. As all three peered out through the windscreen, the most amazing and beautiful colourful light display met their eyes. St. Elmo's fire is a weather phenomenon in which luminous plasma is created by a corona discharge from a rod-like object such as a mast, spire, chimney or animal horn in an atmospheric electric field. Between them, the flight crew had experienced many instances of St. Elmo's fire in the past. Sailors looked upon it with awe and sometimes considered it to be a good omen. On board the 747, the flight crew had never experienced a St. Elmo's fire as spectacular as the one they were watching. But in their case, it was far from being a good omen, but instead heralding oncoming problems and serious danger. Yeah, they were watching, the the other two were watching a display that we often see in the air called St Elmo's Fire. Now, St Elmo was one of the thousands of patron saints of seamen. Seamen seem to have thousands, and airmen have very few, if any, patron saints. But St Elmo was one of the patron saints of uh, seamen, and it, it was so called because in the days when they had wire rigging on sailing ships and they sailed through fog or mist, heavy moisture in the air, they would get this electronic discharge around the rigging and it would be like short lightning or it's a bit like the Northern Lights shimmering up and down the rigging. And we could see it on aeroplanes, on the windscreen. You can see it in the engines. Uh, when you get certain atmospheric conditions, I say like mist or fog, up in high cirrus cloud, you can get it. And this electrical discharge occurs up and down the windscreen or in the engines. And I'd seen it dozens of times, so had the other two, but they'd never seen it as attractive and so intense as we did on that evening. And your weather radar on the plane was showing clear? Well, the droplets you need to get this uh, electronic discharge are so small that the radar can't detect it. You need big, heavy raindrops for radar to be able to detect it. And at that stage, you obviously weren't aware what was causing this. Oh, gosh, we had no idea for, well, it could have gone on for a fortnight, but it took us a couple of days to find out what it was all about. Yeah, we were in total ignorance. Now, the real problem started when engine number four gave up and then was a two and then three and one afterwards. And now you were in serious trouble. Yeah, what was happening that night was what never happens in an aeroplane. You never lose all four engines unless you've made a great mistake. I'd only ever heard in my life of one aeroplane before with four engines 
all four failed. And that was an aeroplane they were flying. Uh, they were getting the fuel for all four engines from one tank, and they let that tank run dry. Well, that's very embarrassing. That's a cock-up, and uh, you don't want to get on the ground and admit you've made that sort of mistake because somebody's not watching if that happens. So we all, when we got on the ground, we all said we had no idea what was happening when we were all bemused. And that perhaps is the best way to be. You don't want to start having post-mortem or post-mortes in the air because you haven't got time. What you've got to do if you're going to think is think through the problem and think how you can get out of it. You were gliding now, so, at this stage, and was it for every 15 kilometres that the 747 travelled, you were dropping one kilometre? All I knew was we were coming down at about 1,200 feet a minute and uh, we had enough height to keep us flying for a few minutes. Talk to me about the passengers here now, because the priority always, in your case, is rectifying uh, rectifying a problem At what stage are the passengers then informed, usually in cases like this, but in a case like this, they had to be because they were experiencing problems themselves? Well, I don't know is the answer to your question. I mean, unless you're at the back of the aircraft, behind the engines, and you had your blinds up, I don't think they knew anything was happening. Quite honestly, it was very smooth. And the only thing of in- of interest, perhaps, to them was we were putting fuel into those engines like there was no tomorrow, trying to get them started. It was coming out the back unburnt, and it was meeting the St. Elmo's fire, which were sparks and, and uh, shimmering lights into this electrical discharge, and it was flaming out the back. And it would have looked as though we had four flaming engines on fire. But the blinds might have been down or should have been down. They weren't at the very back, I know. But there was no need for them to know anything then. And, and quite honestly, we were so busy on the flight deck trying to get these engines going that there was no need to tell them, and I didn't tell them. Coming up in part two, Eric eventually has to make an announcement to the passengers, but for a different reason. What he does say is later regarded as a masterpiece of understatement. And as if all four engines failing isn't enough to deal with, the problems keep mounting in the cockpit. The story of British Airways Flight 009, a Where the Road Takes Me special, it continues in part two after the break. <laughs> 